this book really captures the many different peoples living in Jerusalem at this time. Because as, as listeners are aware, I'm sure, Jerusalem is home to religious sites for the three great Abrahamic religions. You know, you know, we have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, and of course also sites very important to Judaism. So pilgrims from across the world are drawn to this city. An excerpt from today's guest, speaking on medieval Jerusalem, will discuss the queens who ruled that holy city with author Catherine Pangonis right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. Welcome back. Today's guest specializes in the medieval world of the Mediterranean and the Middle East. She holds master's degrees in literature and history, from Oxford University and University College London. Her focus is in rewriting the voices of women into the historical narrative, re-examining understudied areas of history and bringing her findings to the public eye. Her book is called Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule. It came out yesterday in the States and author Catherine Pangonis joins us now. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. And before we get into the book, I noted that you narrated your own audiobook. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was great. You know, I had to, um, it's, it's a funny process reading your audiobook after the book has gone to press because only in reading something slowly and out loud do you notice any errors that have slipped through. So it was quite a, quite a nerve wracking process. Um, but fortunately there were only there were only five errors and they were very minor, but they, 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 they wrung my heart. Um, oh. But no, it was a great process and it forced me to learn the correct pronunciations of the names of all my characters. Mm-hmm. And I had to audition to read my own book. Um, I had to audition against a lot of actresses to... Oh, really? Uh, yeah, they're, they're not usually a fan of authors narrating their own work. Um, yeah, that's why I asked they, you. Yeah, but they let me. So that was, um, that was, and it was a fun experience. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I could narrate any of my books. I just uh, I wouldn't have the patience, I don't think. Mm. But uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, I listened to an interview uh, with another podcaster, and you mentioned on that interview that when you looked into this topic, you'd always been interested in the topic, but there wasn't much information on women rulers in the medieval Middle East. What was your research process like? So it's an interesting question. Yeah, so I mean, what brought me to the book was the fact that um, the field of study of the Crusades is, is hyperactive. There's new material published all the time and new and brilliant books published every year, um, whether it's on the Templars, the world of the Crusades, Richard the Lionheart, all these, all of these figures and these, these organizations, wars, they get a lot of attention. Um, but women were playing a huge role at this time and there was very little literature devoted to them. And you can't fully blame modern historians for that, because part of the reason for that is there's much less original source material describing the lives and the deeds of women at this time. And the reason for that is, I mean, in, in, in simple terms, patriarchal misogyny. I mean, the, 
the, the vast majority, I mean, there's one exception, which is Anna Kanena, but the vast majority of medieval historians who were writing at the time were men, and the majority of them were churchmen, so were clergymen, whose lives featured, you know, an imbalance in terms of gender exposure. They had very little interaction with women, and women were considered inherently different and excluded from the political sphere in many ways and second-class citizens. So they just didn't get the, in modern day we say the airtime, but in medieval times, the, shall we say, the, the parchment space they deserved in the chronicles. Um, so research, in order to piece together sort of accurate and full pictures of these women's lives, I went through all the original medieval sources for the Crusades, um, whether in sometimes in original language, sometimes in translation, into French or English with a fine tooth comb to pick out any and all references to these women. And then I'm sort of, you know, I made a list of everything and put them to group them together. And then it was a question, it was a question of using these scraps of information uh, as, as well as, you know, a lot of contextual knowledge and, you know, and the, uh, the work of others to put this together to make sort of chronological portraits of these women's lives and who they were and what they were like. And, a great example of that is with Queen Melisande. She's the the cent, you know, she's the central figure of my book. She's the most powerful woman ruler in the medieval Middle East, um, and rules over the kingdom of Jerusalem when it reaches its greatest territorial extent. She's the queen when the Second Crusade comes east. She's an incredibly important figure, and we have no descriptions of her or what she looked like, except mm. as a foil to a description of her son. So one one chronicler, he describes Melisande's son. And what he looks like and he says he gives an unwitting portrait of Melisande by saying that you know his features were comely and refined his complexion was florid in this respect he resembled his mother so we can by unpicking that we can oh. learn a little bit about what she looks like but there's nothing dedicated to her um so that's the sort of process it's sort of reading between the lines and finding these scraps of information and then putting them together and that was my first question about Queen Melisande. Take us back to the time before the siege that Saladin conducted in 1187. What was Jerusalem like? Oh, during Melisande's rule, it's a brilliant question. I mean, yeah, as I mentioned, Melisande ruled when the kingdom reached its greatest territorial extent. So it's, it's at, you know, she's, she's queen at both, both the time of the kingdom's sort of greatest strength and it's flourishing, but also at a time of crisis, the Second Crusade. Um, so it's a it's a wide period, but generally speaking, Jerusalem is a multicultural hub at this time, and it has a flourishing artistic and cultural scene. Um, some of the you know one of the greatest works of art we have from this period is produced from the scriptorium of the Holy Sepulchre during Melisande's reign, and that's called the Melisande Psalter. And this is a really interesting and unique document or source to consider, because it brings together all the many different cultures and ethnicities coexisting in Jerusalem at this time. So this very lavish and beautiful prayer book that historians believe was given as a gift to Melisande by her husband. Mm. Um, it incorporates art by at least seven different artists from different backgrounds. So it has Byzantine influences, it has Arabic and Islamic influences, it has Armenian influences, it has Western, you know, Latin influences, um, and many more. And so this this, doc, this book really captures the many different peoples living in Jerusalem at this time, because as, as listeners are aware, I'm sure Jerusalem is home to religious sites for the three great Abrahamic religions. You know, you know right. we have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, and of course also sites very important to Judaism. So pilgrims from across the world are drawn to this city, um, whether for trade or for religious purposes. So it's it's really 
Um, it's really diverse for this time, yeah. The Queen, did you get to kind of discern her personality somewhat from reading between the lines? Yeah, 100%. I think Melison's career and her her achievements definitely give you a glimpse into the sort of person she was. And the, the main adjective that comes to mind is formidable and another is tenacious, you know, and, and ambitious. She's, I mean, in, in to give a brief overview of her life, she's being against the odds and sort of against tradition. Uh, she is being groomed to, to be to, as the heiress of the kingdom from a young age. So when she's a teenager and an adolescent, her father is bringing her to meetings of the high council of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And so she's receiving mm-hmm. a very thorough political education. Um, and we can tell that she, you know, she has ambition and she does, she's certainly not going to be brushed aside. And her political career as queen really starts on her father's deathbed when her father flouts all expectations and indeed the laws and changes his will to leave power jointly to not, to Melisande and her husband mm. and her baby son. And her husband had been expecting that he would be the only one to inherit power and his wife would be there as his link to the throne and his consort, but certainly not a co-ruler. Um, and then over the, you know, the, the years that follow of their joint reign, we really see Melisande assert her, her personality and her dominance. And while she's sidelined at first, there's a, there's a civil war that, you know, there's a scandal, a brief civil war, and Melisande emerges from that as the senior partner in their relationship. And following that, her name is on all the charters and the chronicles attest that following this initial skirmish, this initial power struggle between the couple, her husband Fulk never did anything without her consent and was, oh. was quite afraid of her. So we see that she's <laughs> very, she's a fierce force to be reckoned with in the politics. And this is demonstrated again when she in fact goes to war with her own son over control of the kingdom of Jerusalem. So she's she's clearly she's clearly very ambitious. She's and she's and she's very shrewd because she she assembles a very strong power base in Jerusalem. She donates money to the right people. She earns the affection and the trust of her people of, of you know the population, and it becomes very difficult for her son to actually oust her and take power for himself as the law would as the law would suggest he should because she's established herself so firmly at the center of politics. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, Linda Herview will be here to discuss her book, Forgotten, the untold story of D-Day's black heroes as we kick off Black History Month. And in two weeks, on February 15th, New York Times best-selling author, Mark Greeney, will be here to talk about his latest military thriller, Sierra Six. For this book, I kind of had an idea of going back into my hero, Fort Gentry's past. He was a member of a, of a paramilitary force and his call sign was Sierra Six, which is where the title comes from. I think my idea initially for this book was I'd like to delve into Fort's past, not exactly an origin story, but uh, to show you some of his background right. and keep it with something contemporary at the same time. That's next time. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. Did Queen Melisande leave any writings? No, that's the great tragedy. We have, we have no letters from Melisande. We have a couple of very interesting documents letters addressed to Melisande from Bernard of Clairvaux known in the Catholic Church Saint Bernard um, the man who preached the Second Crusade and right. a, a hugely prominent figure 
of, of the church in Western Europe at this time. Um, and he sends her two really interesting letters. I think the first is on the death of her husband when she becomes the regent for her son and essentially becomes the sole ruler of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. So this is really the height of Melisande's power. And Bernard sends her a letter saying that she must put her hand to a man's work and rise above her gender and be a man in a woman's body and all these things, which is, um, it's it's incredible actually that he's not suggesting she should remarry, that he's actually telling her to do this herself. Right. And that, that indicates something of the reputation Melzon must have had. And then the second letter is very funny. He sends it a bit later. Um, and it's like saying, it's essentially saying, I've heard you've been you've been having affairs and doing untoward things and I, I want to counsel you strongly against this sort of behavior it's a very stern like you know i'm reminding you you're the queen of the christian king is so the second letter is very funny the first letter is very inspirational but yes it's, it's yeah, <laughs> nothing yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> no. very much back on the wrist <laughs> she had a granddaughter queen i'm get, gonna get the pronunciation right Sibla. Right, Queen Sibylla. Yes, but it doesn't. It doesn't really matter, you know. The, who, your guess is as good as mine. But yes, uh, what about Sibylla? Can you describe her a little bit? Yeah, so Sibylla's really interesting um, for for many reasons. She's her. She's of all the queens of Jerusalem, she's probably the most mysterious. And of all the women I discuss in my book, she is the most mysterious for the the simple reason that William of Tyre, the main chronicler for this period, he was the court the court historian of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, and he gave most of he gave a lot of detail as to the rulers and their personalities and what they achieved. He's the one who gave us these fleeting glimpses of Melisande. He stopped writing just as Sibylla was beginning to come to power in Jerusalem. He sort of he was despair he was getting he was very old and he was probably becoming ill but he was also completely despairing of the state of the kingdom and he was not a fan of Sibylla's and he just gave up writing sort of in disgust just as she was on the cusp of coming to power so we we know less about her um but she she came to the throne in very sad circumstances because she was she came to power as Saladin was tightening his grip on the Latin kingdom as he was assembling right. his and beginning to march against the kingdom and as the kingdom was beginning to collapse um, and Sibylla became queen as the result of a succession crisis because her brother, made famous by the, king, the film Kingdom of Heaven, was the leper king of Jerusalem. So her brother did not have, you know, he came to power, but he had leprosy and he died young. And then Sibylla's son inherited the throne, Baldwin V, and then this child died. And there were even rumours many centuries later that Sibylla had murdered her own son. And then Sibylla came to power, at, so essentially stepping over the bodies of her brother and her son, so in very difficult circumstances. Um, and she was offered the throne of Jerusalem on the condition that she divorced her husband. Her husband was hmm. the most unpopular man in the kingdom, um, a man called Guy de Lusignan, or Guy of Lusignan, depending on how you pronounce it. And he was very unpopular. And so the barons of the kingdom offered Sibylla the throne on the condition that she divorced her husband. And then she did this sort of very clever, very clever manoeuvre of agreeing to divorce her husband but and accept the crown, but on the condition that she'd then be allowed to select her own new husband of anyone she wanted from the nobles of the realm. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she said, OK, we're going to, you know, it's going to be very humiliating for my husband for him to be divorced. So but we have to make sure he keeps his land and remains a nobleman. So they all agree to this. Sibylla's coronation goes ahead. And as soon as the crown is on her head, as soon as the holy oil is on her forehead and she's anointed queen, she stands up and she says to the, the congregation, 
I choose Guy de Lusignan to be my new husband. And they can't argue with her. They can't argue because they've agreed to it. And she's now the anointed monarch of Jerusalem. They can't, they can't fight her on this. So then Guy becomes, becomes, becomes the king, becomes her partner. And we don't see the same power balance between Sibylla and Guy as we do between Melisande and Fulk. So whereas Melisande and Fulk, Sibylla's grandparents, were very much co-rulers and Melisande had a very strong say in the politics, we don't have the same evidence to suggest that Sibylla was as much of an equal partner with Guy. So it's, it's hard to say exactly um, how much influence she asserted at the court. But but yes, she certainly made an impression there. Yeah, and her, I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> And her husband is blamed by many for the collapse of the kingdom. He infamously makes the decision to march the army away from water, leading to the Battle of Hattin and the complete routing of the Christian army. Um, and then, yes, and then we come to the Saladin siege where Sibylla, Sibylla plays a role. So, Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. What was her role in the siege? She was one of the primary defenders. Yes. Yeah, so again, this is this is um, a, a, debatable, a debated topic among historians because different sources um, attribute different levels of significance to Sibylla's role in the siege. But the source that I, I am most persuaded by uh, asserts that the siege was led by, had, there were three leaders of the siege. So the siege of Jerusalem of 1187 followed the Battle of Hattin, where pretty much all the Christian army was defeated in one night, um, well, a day and a night, in blood and fire and smoke. It was horrible, um, a complete massacre. And this left the Kingdom of Jerusalem without a proper defensive force. And most of the noblemen, the noblemen of the kingdom were, were in captivity or dead, including Sibylla's husband. So mm. the defense of the city was led by this ragtag group of three, which was Patriarch Heraclius, Patriarch Heraclius, who controlled the funds of the city, Balian of Iblen, who commanded the, who was a, you know, a nobleman, a military commander, and Sibylla, who had the authority to lead. She's the figurehead of this resistance. And in a situation like this, you would expect Sibylla to be making the strategic and political decisions alongside Valiant of Iblin and Heraclius. And a lot of people detract, take away from Sibylla's, the importance of Sibylla's role by the fact that the chronicles demonstrate that it was Valiant of Iblin who rode out on a horse to negotiate with Saladin. But I don't believe that that fact suggests that Sibylla wasn't in charge because it would have been completely inappropriate for, for a woman to ride out and negotiate with Saladin. This wouldn't have happened. And what would happen in that situation is the woman would appoint a deputy to ride out on her behalf. So I believe Sibylla was indeed running the siege, as women often did, not only Christian women, but Muslim women too, when their husbands were in captivity, as Sibylla's was. So I believe that she was playing a key role in commanding the defense of the city, and that Balian of Iblin was acting as her deputy. Yeah, I can imagine she uh, she did hold the power behind, and I, and I know that she probably wouldn't, wouldn't have ridden out to see Sullivan. It wouldn't make sense. Do you think there's other stories to tell about women during the Crusades, during this time Many period. more. Many more. Many, many more. Um, the great regret of my book um, is, well, no, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I loved writing it and I'm delighted with what I did, but I'm, I'm aware there's more to be done, particularly in terms of describing the roles and the lives of Islamic women during this period. So one of the things right. I discovered during my research was actually that while while Western women, while the women of the Crusader courts were glossed over in the sources, still more neglected were the Islamic women. But likewise, that doesn't mean they weren't playing an active role in politics. And, you know, the two great examples of this that come to mind is this woman called Zamarad of Damascus, who's a direct contemporary of Queen Melisande, 
and is really calling the shots at the court, the court of Damascus. She really acts as kingmaker. You know, she, among other things in her career, she's an architectural patron like Melison, but she also arranges the assassination of her own son, uh, installs her, uh, another son on the throne, and then marries the most powerful warlord of the time, the Turkish Atabeg Zengi. And so she's really, she's really playing a, a huge political role. And until a couple of months ago, there wasn't even a Wikipedia page about her, and the, she's oh. only got a few mentions and a few sources. So she's a really understudied woman who has, um, you know, a fantastic history and played a key role in politics. And the other woman is Saladin's wife, um, a woman who, you know, we don't even know her Christian name because, well, Christian's name is the wrong term, but we don't even know her first name. The sources gloss over it, but we only know her as Ismatadin Khatun, which means sort of great lady of the faith in Arabic. But again, we know she's a very important woman. She's married first to Nur ad-Din and then to Saladin. And we know that she's so close with Saladin and educated enough to be exchanging letters with him daily. Um, when she's married to Nur ad-Din, she's, she commands the siege of Banyas in his absence. And we know that when she died, the Saladin's advisors were so concerned of the effects that the news of her death would have on him that they withheld the information for some time. So I really I think there's so much more research to be done into the roles played by Islamic women during this period. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's a whole treasure trove of stories that haven't been told. I would imagine there's a, a movie in there somewhere as well. Oh, I would hope so. I fully back that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Has Netflix come calling, or, or? Well, not quite, but there have been some conversations with um with big with big TV organizations. So. I'm not counting my chickens yet, but I'd love it if something came of them. I'd really love to see that happen. Are you working on anything right now, a new book? Yeah, exactly. So I'm working on my second book right now, which was sort of quite heavily impacted by COVID because it has a strong travel element to the research. But it was it was completely inspired by the work I did for Queens of Jerusalem because it's a book about the forgotten capitals of the Mediterranean. And it was inspired by my travels to Antioch and to Tyre while researching this book. And I, you know, I came to these cities and just had my eyes open to sort of the layers of history. I mean, Antioch was a rival to Rome in its heyday. You know, Tyre was the great Phoenician capital and, um, and other cities I'm looking at are Syracuse and Sicily and Ravenna and mm. Carthage. So these cities that were once global power centers, but have since declined and sort of examining what's brought about those declines and, and what's left now. But but I have just managed to finish all the research trips, which was a true joy. And now I'm now I'm writing away. So yeah. Have some uh, great characters emerged in your research? Oh yeah, and um, characters that link the cities. So I mean, obviously Alexander the Great is is a thread that runs throughout. But so is Justinian's general Belisarius, um, the great Byzantine general, um, George Menaeakis. Uh, so yeah, these these great characters from different empires that um, have, had, have had a hand in the fate of several of these cities. And then, of course, you have the mythology um, of Dido leaving, leaving Tyre to go to Carthage, mm -hmm. and, then, and then other great figures like Hannibal, where it's just great to have right. an excuse to spend some time really getting your teeth into the history around figures like him. Yeah, it's been a wonderful process. Well, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> We're talking about your current book, and the book is called Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule. And there's a link to uh, purchase the book in this episode's description. And Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, Linda Herview will be here to discuss her book, Forgotten, the untold story of D-Day's black heroes as we kick off Black History Month. And in two weeks, 
on February 15th, New York Times best-selling author Mark Greeney will be here to talk about his latest military thriller, Sierra Six. For this book, I kind of had an idea of going back into my hero, Fort Gentry's past. He was a member of a, of a paramilitary force and his call sign was Sierra Six, which is where the title comes from. I think my idea initially for this book was I'd like to delve into Fort's past, not exactly an origin story, but uh, to show you some of his background right. and keep it with something contemporary at the same time. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.